The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You've got this tug of war going on between the government and the Bank of England. That doesn't lead to a stable situation. We must face up to the fact that for too long, our economy has not grown enough. I'm prepared to do what it takes to get us through these difficult times, to get us through this difficult winter, and to come out stronger as a country. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics, your daily guide to the corridors of power. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Today, the race is on to replace Liz Truss, but can the Conservatives rally around just one candidate? And who's up to the challenge? We'll hear from the former Chancellor Philip Hammond and Will Walden, who used to be an advisor to Boris Johnson. Plus, we'll be seeking some lessons in leadership from the corporate world. The former CEO of Lloyds of London, Inga Beale, will be joining us later in the show. But first, the Tories' 1922 committee wants a speedy outcome to this race. They are not messing around. Under their hastily agreed new rules, a maximum of three Tory MPs will be able to run, each needing nominations from 100 of their parliamentary colleagues. That means the next leader could be decided as soon as Monday, because once the field's been whittled down to two, one of those candidates will likely face pressure to withdraw, rather than going to the grassroots party members and giving them the final say. So, Ewan, who are the names that we are watching out for? Well, Stephen, this is where it gets interesting. Now, if you follow the money, there are only three candidates with any chance of becoming our fifth Prime Minister, fifth since 2016. The favourite is Rishi Sunak. He was favourite last time. Currently an evens chance on Betfair Exchange. A distant third with current odds of 6-1 to one is Penny Morden. I should say these are odds as of 11am uh, this morning. But in second, and these odds have been rapidly shortening so far this morning, and believe me, I spent the whole morning looking at them, which is why my work was rather behind. <laughs> you may know the name. It is one Boris Johnson. Well, now, I mean, I flippantly said at the end of yesterday's programme, imagine what happens by the time we'll get to today. Uh, I hadn't imagined on the potential for Boris Johnson to be flying back from the Caribbean and it appears being a serious contender to be Prime Minister again. I think the one lesson with Boris Johnson is you should never rule out anything, even if it seems... Uh, a little bit crazy. Just interesting to take a quick look also at, as of uh, around 11am, of the number of MPs who reported to have backed the three candidates. And some of this is slightly speculative. Uh, according to Guido Fawkes, 52 have now signed up to Boris Johnson, although the Times says only 26 publicly, so a bit of a disagreement there. Rishi Sunak, also on 52. Uh, the Times says 44, though. And uh, according to Guido Fawkes, Penny Mordant has 19. So they're all some way off the 100 threshold. Uh, in my mind, I think Boris Johnson probably is the, well, is this, I, I think perhaps he's the least popular of the three amongst MPs, but he does, uh, his supporters are very, very keen. So I think he probably divides opinion 
uh, most. And so look, is- there, yeah, there are plenty of tallies around there for those MP numbers as well. So we're treating them with great caution too. Um, of course, the, the challenges facing whoever becomes the next Prime Minister uh, is pretty grim. There's a Bloomberg article today said whoever wins loses because of the grim economy that they will inherit. We know the bond market's played a key part in the de- demise of Liz Truss, refe- re- rejecting her unfunded tax cut plans. The former Chancellor, Philip Hammond, has said the markets will be watching her successor closely. He's been speaking to Bloomberg's Tom McKenzie and Francine Lacroix. The most important thing at the moment is to calm uh, the markets. We've seen the power of the markets over the last few weeks. I think Chancellor Jeremy Hunt was getting on top of that, putting together a package that would have been reassuring to the markets on the 31st of October. Clearly what we mustn't do now is anything which signals to the markets more chaos, instability and uncertainty ahead. Then the government, the new government, has got to outline a clear growth plan. Liz Truss's growth plan was based on a single proposition. You cut taxes through by borrowing and somehow that magically delivers you growth. Doesn't matter whether that's credible or not credible anymore because clearly the markets are not going to allow it. So there needs to be an alternative growth plan. How does Britain earn its living in the post-Brexit, post-Covid, post-energy crisis world? (laughs) Well, look, my own view is we've got to be prepared to take a few risks. We've got to articulate, for example, a role for the City of London, for the financial services uh, industry, which is this country's most important single industry. And that may mean um, being prepared to take some calculated risks as we put Britain in the lead in areas of new technology, new trading Mm -hmm. techniques, new products. But I don't think Britain has the option of simply sitting back, relaxing and hoping that the world will deliver it a living. Uh, indeed, and we had reminders from the, from the data that came through, uh, Mr Hammond, this morning around retail sales and around uh, the borrowing, additional borrowing in the month of September, that the strains on this economy. Uh, when, when it comes uh, to your assessment, though, of, of the likelihood of a fiscal plan uh, being published and announced, a, as the Chancellor has hoped, by the end of this month, uh, the, the reporting from the Times and our own assessment from our team is that's, that's looking unlikely. Would, would you concur with that view and what do you expect the market reaction to be to that if it gets delayed? Well, I think it depends whether uh, the Chancellor is replaced. If a new Chancellor is appointed, um, clearly he or she will want um, uh, a period of time to look at the package. If the new incoming Prime Minister decides to uh, confirm Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor, uh, then I see no reason why he couldn't go ahead and deliver the package on the 31st of October. He's obviously been working on it um, since he's been in office. How will the Conservative Party change now? It does feel like, because of the voting rules, could we have a Prime Minister on Monday? And is that pragmatism, you know, ahead of ideology? Well, we clearly could have a a leader, a new leader, a new Prime Minister on Monday, if only one candidate passes the nomination hurdle that the 1922 committee uh, has set. Mm -hmm. But look, what I think is clear is that the uh, rules that we currently have, which have a two-stage process where the MPs select two candidates nominally, and then the members vote. That isn't working. Uh, It hasn't delivered the results we want. By the way, nor does the Labour Party's methodology for electing a leader work. Um, It's not served them well over the last uh, decade or so. So I think both parties need to look at how we do this and make sure that we have a leadership election uh, methodology that's fit and proper for the 21st century. Okay, that was the former Chancellor Philip Hammond speaking to our colleagues on Bloomberg Television earlier. 
Well, Boris Johnson returning would be something of an ex- extraordinary twist, but is he running? Well, we've been speaking to Will Walden from Edelman, a former advisor to Johnson at Number 10 and at City Hall when he was Mayor of London. They asked if he'd spoken to Boris. Uh, I haven't. I spoke to someone 12 hours ago who'd spoken directly to him and he was certainly taking soundings. And my understanding was that he was getting on a plane from his um, no doubt luxurious Caribbean holiday to to return to presumably in his mind, uh, try and sort out the mess. Uh, Do I think it would be a good idea? No, I don't. Uh, And that's um, as someone who has known him for a heck of a long time, worked with him very closely and for a long time counted him as a a close friend. I don't think there's any certainty that Boris will run, but he's certainly looking at it. And, and, And part of that is that he hates losing. So I suspect that if he can't see a path to making the threshold on Monday, and particularly even if he made the threshold and there were three candidates on that threshold, whether he could come second, because, you know, for your listeners, the... The decision has been placed, if, if there are two candidates, in the hands of the party membership. Uh, I've got no doubts in my mind that if it were he were in the final two, that he would win. I don't think that the Tory grassroots have given up on Boris Johnson, even if the rest of the country uh, certainly has. Uh, and I think the other thing that's weighing on his mind is that, you know, I'm not entirely sure that Boris I know really wants the job. Uh, you know, I think he wants to go and make some money in an easy life, but I expect he's under a lot of pressure to to put his hat in the ring. And the reason that he probably doesn't want the job deep down is that there's a 31 percent gap to Labour in the in in the uh, in the polls. Uh, And he will inherit a cost of living crisis for which his party will undoubtedly get the blame. So I think he'll be weighing up all those factors before he decides. However, I think that probably the pressure on on Boris and 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 his own ego in terms of well I was hard done by is is too much and if he thinks that he can get to the final two he'll stand. Okay, would he actually be able to be though the serious man for serious times? I mean, he was ousted in July after simply a laundry list of scandals on ethics, on standards. And I mean, we know from his his. Um, leaving departing speech that he, he as you say he felt hard done by but can can he really take on these challenges no but i think part of the problem here is that the tory party has lost a sense of what its identity is so it it doesn't really have a unity candidate which is what in this extraordinary circumstance is putting boris back in play look you know let's if if you've got a second let's let's go back all of this ignores the fact that his defenestration about three months ago was his own doing. He's got an elastic relationship with the truth. There was the Patterson affair, Partygate, the Pincher affair, the way he governed. And his supporters will tell you that he's an election winner. Well, that's been disproven now. He might have won in 2019. But in June, he presided over two horrific by-election uh, defeats that by massive majorities. And he behoved the Liz Truss mess on the country. Six weeks ago, 70% of the country said they wanted him out including a majority of Tory voters, they haven't changed their mind. But it's also clear that Boris hasn't changed his mind. He thinks he's done nothing wrong. He's unrepentant. He thinks he's been hard done by. And a very senior member of the government messaged me last night and said, look, maybe he's changed, mate. Maybe he's changed. And I would say, as Boris would say to you, hogwash. You know, choosing Boris is a huge risk for the Tory party and the country because of the state of the economy. But equally, there is no consensus around anybody. And that's why he's clearly in play. Is there a potential Tory candidate that you would back, Will, if Boris is absolutely not the answer? Who would be? Is there anybody who might be a threat uh, to Labour? Or are we at the end of, you know, 12 years of, of Conservative rule and there is simply no fresh talent there? 
Well, I think the idea that, you know, Boris has a mandate is ludicrous. We don't live in a presidential system. Yes, he won an 80-seat majority against a very weak opponent in 2019, but so much has changed since then. So I don't, you know, I mean, look, I'd still love to go to the pub with Boris for a pint, but I don't necessarily want him running the country. I think the problem is that I don't have a vote in that sense. Um, I'm not a Tory member, but also I'm critically not a Tory MP. And if they can't coalesce around Sunak, you know, who clearly has been proved right over the summer and he stuck to his guns and the trust experiment has failed, then I can't see who necessarily does it. The, you know, the one possible unity candidate is Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, who's done a blinding job at defence uh, over Afghanistan and, and, and Ukraine in particular. He's well liked by the grassroots uh, and I think he would come command a unity candidate position the problem is i don't think ben will run i i think he you know it, it isn't for him he's fiercely protective of you know uh, of his young family i think the scrutiny and the pressure he's thinking probably it's not worth doing and if he doesn't i can't see who the unity candidate to come through the middle is and that that just behoves you know more more chaos in the and not so not mordant not well, I don't know. I, I know Penny a little bit. I, I, I don't know. I, I suppose you see. Here's the thing, right? I, I think that the just quickly the the grey suits that sort of manage the Tory party are thinking that if Sunak comes first in this and Morden comes second, she'll just drop out. I don't think that's the case at all. Even if Boris doesn't come second, I think Sunak's back as a living in cloud cookie land. If they think that somebody comes second and then can go to the membership, uh, you know, and they'll decide is going to drop out of the contest. So any sense that there will be a clear coronation, I think, is is for the birds. The, the real issue that's going on at the moment is, you know, will Boris make the threshold? And more importantly, will he finish second? Or not? From Silicon Valley to Wall Street. The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, Top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, Liz Truss will leave Downing Street with one record intact, and that is the shortest tenure as a prime minister in British history. Her premiership disintegrated with that disastrous mini-budget, and the next Conservative leader will have a steep mountain to climb to reunite the party. Thinking about all of this, we're interested in how leadership in the corporate world might be instructive in meeting some of those challenges. We've got Inga Beale with us to talk about this. She's the former CEO of Lloyds of London, now a member of several corporate boards and president of the British Swiss Chamber of Commerce. Inga, thanks for joining us on the programme. Do you think that it was in any way a failure of leadership that led to Liz Truss's demise or was it something else? I think there are numerous factors, but leadership has to be critical in this. Um, And I know from actually being a leader of many organizations, some smaller, some bigger, 
you cannot, you have to listen to other people. Um, and I also believe today that leadership is, I mean, it's evolved. It's evolved over the years. And I think gone are those days where you could sit in some room surrounded by your closest aides and come up with what you were going to say and you were going to be out there leading from the front and everyone was just going to follow you. Those days are kind of gone. And I think in the corporate world, we've learned, um, and some people have learned the hard way, but we've learned that you've actually got to bring all your stakeholders with you. And there are numerous ones. I mean, obviously, if you're running the country, you've got many, many stakeholders. But even today in the corporate world, you've got many, many stakeholders to bring along with you and actively listening to them all and trying to then balance your message and your strategy and your approach to things is absolutely vital. I'm interested in your thoughts on uh, surrounding yourself with people that agree with you. Um, one of the things Liz Truss has been uh, criticised for was was pretty much surrounding, uh, filling her cabinet with trust supporters and casting aside anybody who didn't back her in the leadership race. Uh, what, what are the lessons from the corporate world in terms of having people who disagree in the room? Yeah, th- and this has been a theme now for, for some time, um, getting different people around the table to challenge you, because no leader, whether you're the CEO of a company, whether you're the leader of a country, you do not know all the answers. And if you've got people thinking just like you who aren't necessarily going to challenge and come up with a different view, that is not the right way to run anything anymore. And there's been such a lot of talk and work in the corporate world to make sure that people are getting diverse voices around those tables of influence. Um, and this doesn't just mean, and, and obviously I've been I've been talking about sort of gender balance around the boardroom table for many years, but it's not just about that. It's about getting people from all sorts of different backgrounds and experiences, all different approaches to things, because you have to be challenged as a leader. You have to listen to those challenges and then weigh it all up and come out with a with a good balanced answer, particularly when you're dealing with so many different stakeholders and so many different views. Now, the politics and business are obviously different worlds, but both involve bringing together opposing and often very strident personalities into a room and and coming to agreement on things. You know, are there experiences that you've had in your career that you think that are are helpful to how to do that? I'm I'm thinking about the Conservative Party, not terribly united at the moment, but they do have to move in the same direction. You do. And and when you're leading anything, you've obviously got to have some overall vision that everyone can buy into, right? And, and that's absolutely vital. Now, this um, the government will have so many different voices to listen to, but they, have to, they do have to listen to them. And I know I keep repeating the word listen, but it's really important because only by doing that and listening particularly to experts when you're not the expert um, and you are not going to be, even as the Prime Minister of the UK, you're not going to be an expert in everything. So you do need to listen to the experts. And that's the only way then you can come up with your vision that's right for the country or for your company. Now, when you're managing uh, a disparate group, a very diverse group of people, this is a this is a management challenge in itself. Because when you are all an homogenous group, it's so much easier to sit around the table and all agree with each other. When you're a leader managing a diverse group, you've got to work harder at it. 
You've got to bring out the people who maybe are speaking more softly, who don't always get their voice heard. You've got to try and shut up those who have a loud, strong voice. This is all about the skill um, around the management table. And business leaders who succeed do this very, very well to make sure that all the voices are heard in equal measure. Do, do women who make it to the top in the corporate world or in politics still get a rougher ride th- than men? I'm just, I'm just wondering, you know, if, if, if Liz Truss uh, had not been a woman, w- would things have turned out differently in any way? Well, I, I couldn't really comment on this trust. I, I, I don't really know. I've only seen her from what I see from the media. But in general, and if I look at financial services, which I've been in for 40 years, it does still seem tougher for women to make it than for the men because, A, there are differences between the genders and a lot of the world historically was built around sort of male norms of leadership and the world is changing now and all other different sort of different forms of leadership are now respected and actually desired particularly by employees and the public and your customers but still there are various societal pressures and and all sorts of things that go on whether it's microaggressions and there's been quite a lot of research into this more microaggressions against women than men, even at the top table in an organization. So there are multiple things going on here, um, which is why we still need to talk about these differences. We need to try and understand them because it doesn't mean that one type of leader is going to always succeed and one type of leader was going to fail. That's not true. Different types of leaders can both succeed, but we've got to understand those differences. And then when you're a leader at the top, surround yourself by people who are going to complement where you have gaps. And I'm just seeing still more tough for women to get right to the top of an organization than it, than it is for men, certainly in the financial services sector. If you were advising someone who was looking to become the next leader of the Tory party, have you any uh, thoughts on how they could unite a very diverse and disunited organization? I think something about being a bit more humble is is there. Um, people want to see slightly more humble leaders actually taking account of the stakeholders. And sometimes I think when you particularly I see it in politics, more so than in business these days, you don't see sort of CEOs out there just being so vehement in their views and saying, I'm going to do this and I'm not going to change and that. CEOs are much more, well, I suppose, sort of practical in a way, but they also communicate, I believe now, in a different way, sort of showing a bit more humility, showing that actually this is a team effort. And I think that's important, that it's not about you only as the individual. It's got to be shown to be a team success and people working together. In politics, uh a lot of populists have been uh, cl- clamouring for the end of experts, Michael Gove uh, uh, famously. Do you think we've sort of reached the end of that path or, or is there still a sort of prejudice against uh, expert opinion? Well, I don't, I'm not a political commentator, so I, I don't keep up with all of that. But I do know from, if I just think about something like the pandemic and how ill-prepared many organizations seemed, many governments seemed, despite experts around the world warning for years that there would be a human pandemic, 
In fact, some of the work that the insurance sector did, we were highlighting that in one of the, as one of the top five risks for many cities around the world for years. But nobody was really listening to us. Oh, we don't need that expert opinion. And because those voices weren't at the influential tables, they didn't really get listened to. I'm a firm believer that you absolutely need to listen to expert opinion. Um, but I also know that we want constructive expert opinion. We don't need people just always criticizing and looking for the bad in everything. We actually need people to come up with the positive stuff that needs to happen. Inga, you have, you're involved in so many different corporate organisations. I'm wondering if you have, in the conversations you've been having with colleagues, uh, thoughts on, on what business needs now from the political leadership in the UK, given that the markets have played such a key role up until this point in the past few weeks. Yeah, the, the business needs some stability. It needs to be able to get its confidence back that we aren't going to have this volatility going on, that people are really clear that the impact of any policies, any changes to any environment, people are really clear what what the impact is going to be. Because unfortunately, when you've got all this volatility, um, business loses some confidence and therefore perhaps is a bit hesitant about some investments it's going to make or where it's going to make investments, hesitant about what it's going to do with its people and its own vision and strategy. So that's what is really needed now, some calm um, and some stability for business to get its confidence back. Inga Beale, we really appreciate your insights on the fascinating topic of leadership and and how the lessons in the corporate world could be applied elsewhere. Thank you so much for joining us. Inga Beale, the former CEO of the Lloyds of London, now the president of the British Swiss Chamber of Commerce, among many other hats uh, that Inga Beale wears as well. Yeah, really interesting stuff. Uh, just a little update at the end of the show on the latest uh, tally of uh, MPs and who they're nominating for the next Tory party leader. I should say this is as of uh, about 11am. Uh, Bloomberg has done some uh, compilation of this and the numbers a little bit different from the Times and certainly different from Guido's numbers. Sunak on 47, Johnson on 25 and Mordant on 16. So at the moment Sunak a uh, clear favourite but still only halfway to that crucial uh, 100. Of course, nothing officially happens in this race now until Monday. The first ballot of MPs will be at half past three on Monday until half past five. Of course, that will be the moment when we will learn how many candidates might have reached that bar of 100 MPs. Of course, plenty of things could happen between now and then. I said at the end of yesterday's show, imagine what will have happened in 24 hours. I'm sure we'll have plenty to tell you in our next UK politics programme on Monday at midday on DAB Radio. Of course, you can subscribe to our podcast as well to get all of your latest political news. Thank you for joining us. This is Bloomberg UK Politics. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.